He will never give up and never abandon you and never leave you, and He will strengthen you and enable you when you are ready to say, I am no longer willing to live like this. I am done with it. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It's a well-known passage of the temptation of Jesus while He is in the desert for 40 days, and you'll find it on page 1595, page 1595 of the church Bible, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Back in early March, as most of you know, we started a brief series of five or six Sundays in the Lord's Prayer. And that first Sunday, I sought to remind you that there are two places in the Gospels where you'll find recorded the Lord's Prayer. One is Matthew chapter 6, which we have been studying, and the other is Luke chapter 11. And the prayers differ slightly, not in essence, but slightly. And in Luke chapter 11, one of the disciples says to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And when we embarked upon our study that first Sunday, I said, think of all the things the disciples could ask Jesus for. 
Think of the times when they had been there watching a miracle. Think of the moments when his teaching had impacted and transformed lives. Think of walking on water, bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And the thing uppermost in their mind is, Lord, teach us how to pray. Because the disciples recognize, which I think you and I recognize, that prayer is not easy. And when we come to this particular passage, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, the question I am asked most about those words is this. Richard, does this in any way mean that God will lead us into temptation? Because after all, the prayer is, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. Well, let me try and clear up that question before we go any further. What you're seeing here is what is called parallelism. And basically, parallelism is this. When you say something and then you repeat the essence of it in slightly different words, because repetition brings emphasis. And it's almost as if, in the midst of this prayer, Jesus is saying to his disciples, and of course, ultimately to us as well, when you are praying, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one, you're saying the same thing. And in essence, you're saying, Father, please don't let me find myself in a situation where I can't cope. Now, temptation itself is a difficult and complex subject. And so, I thought it would be easier this morning to see how Jesus Himself responds to temptation that is real and genuine and is alarming and threatening. You know, of course, the background to the passage. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River, and then Luke adds what he's called Luke's genealogy. And then he says, the Holy Spirit led him into the desert. And for 40 days, 40 days he was tempted. The popular misconception is at the end of those 40 days, Satan kind of comes alongside him and whispers in his ear, and that's the temptation. But for 40 days he is tempted. And the passage tells us he was hungry. Now, if you're anything like me, in the course of a day, you might discover that you have skipped lunch because something has come up. And the first thing I say when I go home at night is I open the door, I put down my briefcase, and I say, what's for dinner? I'm starving. That's just a single day. But can you imagine 40 days? Satan does come alongside him. And notice what he says. He says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Now, for you and I, that's never going to be a temptation. Never. Because we have no ability to turn stones into bread. So, it's not a, it's not a temptation for us. But what was going on there was this. Satan very cleverly doesn't attack his heavenly Father. He doesn't show any disrespect to Jesus. He doesn't try and minimize who he is. In fact, he goes the opposite way, and he says, now, if you truly are the Son of God, let your walk equal your talk. It's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to live it out. Let me see you do something. Turn one of these stones into bread. Let me see you at work. Think of the impact that would have on me, of all people, if you could turn a stone to bread. Let me see you do something. 
Jesus refuses. And there's a second temptation comes along. And he says, once again, takes him up to a high place and he looks around and he tempts him. And notice what he said. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will be yours. And notice what he is saying. It's mine. All of it. I can give it to you. Think of the acclaim. Think of the international popularity that you would have. Think of the impact and the good you could do. Think of nation after nation after nation bowing down, recognizing you for who you are. Imagine the acclaim. Think of the power you would have. And all of it is yours. And incidentally, you don't need to be arrested. You don't need to be tried and convicted and crucified. You don't need to die for the sins of humanity. It doesn't have to end that way. I can give you it all, and I can give it to you now, today. It can be yours. Think for a second of what you could achieve. And he refuses. And then a third time, the devil takes, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself off from here. And he goes on to quote from a psalm in the Old Testament that says, the Lord God Almighty will look after you and He will protect you. Throw yourself off. Let me see if you truly are who you say you are. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, if you can do all that you claim, let me see something. And he refuses. Now, why does he refuse? Because of this. And what I'm about to say over the next 10 minutes, please don't let your attention wander, because what you're about to hear will take you to depths that you may not have considered before, and I'm pleading with you this morning, hear this and get it. It is crucial for growth in the Christian life. When sin comes knocking at our door, Jesus knew exactly what the Scripture teaches when it comes to sin. And again and again and again and again throughout Scripture, it teaches this, that we tend to think of sin as something we do. And it is that. It is something we are actively, intentionally involved in. We think of it as an act, an event, something that happens but it is so much greater than that, so much more potent, so much more insidious, so much more powerful than we could ever imagine. And when Jesus refuses to do the act, He also refuses to give in to sin because He knows this and hear this, that sin in and of itself 
inherently within it has a tranquilizing, addictive, and enslaving quality. Now, let me say that again and listen to it. It has a tranquilizing, addictive, enslaving quality, and it is dark, distasteful, and debilitates everyone and everything it comes into contact with. Let me explain for you if I can. By saying it is tranquilizing, addictive, and enslaving, this is what I mean. When you sin with the mind, the sin itself, when you act on that temptation, shrivels the mind and reduces your ability to have will over the thing you are involved in. You no longer can think as rationally and as reasonably with clarity as you once did, because sin tranquilizes, it is debilitating, enslaving, and addictive. And what you once thought was so awful, well, it's not so bad. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. Can you see the process? When you sin with the heart, it reduces the heart's ability to be sensitive to what you're doing. In other words, you become desensitized to what is taking place. This past week on the History Channel, I watched a documentary about Nazi Germany. And many of you will know that at the end of the Second World War, the Nazi leadership was put on trial at the Nuremberg Trials. And the people being tried, one after the other, after the other, after the other, said this, I was simply following orders. They had sinned with the mind and justified and rationalized the killing of millions and millions and millions of people. I was just following orders. They sinned with the heart and had become desensitized to the horror and the enormity of what they were doing. That's how powerful sin is. When we're tempted to think it's no big deal, when we're tempted to think everyone's doing it, folks, please understand the magnitude of what is taking place. Last Sunday morning, when we looked at forgive us our sins as we have forgiven others, I shared with you quotes from the trial transcript of Dylan Roof, who had shot to death nine people at the Emmanuel Church in Charleston back in June 2015. And this morning, having heard from the family members, let me share with you what he said in court and then wrote several days afterwards. He says this, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. And a few days later, he wrote, I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. Talk about tranquilizing, addictive enslavement. Sin will always, always tell you that it brings freedom. 
It will always tell you that it puts you in the driving seat of your life. And when you begin to realize it is too late, the tranquilizing, addictive, enslaving effect has kicked in and it has belittled you and demeaned you and enslaved you. That's how serious sin is. That's how serious sin is. It robs you of self-will and self-control. It takes from the mind the ability to be reasonable and rational in the middle of it all. And your heart and mind and will and soul is surrendered, enslaved to it, and you are shrinking day by day by day. That's how serious sin is. That's why when we celebrated this morning the victory of Christ over sin. It was so serious, God sent His only begotten Son to the cross because of it. That's how serious it is. And folks, please hear this. Lies necessitate lies. Bitterness births bitterness Envy brings more envy, racism, more racism, jealousy, more jealousy, and it goes on and on and on and on. And how do we break it? How do we stop it? How do we resist it? Three weeks ago, we looked at the passage in the Lord's Prayer that says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And if you were with us, you will remember we said what? We said, when we say that prayer, your kingdom come, this is what we mean. What we mean is this. Father, allow us, begin with us, start in my life that I might surrender and submit my life in all its entirety to your rule and your reign that's a kingdom prayer. That's when you're praying for self, community, state, nation, world. Thy kingdom come on earth. Father, stop this. Let your rule and reign break out in my life and in my family's life and across our world. That's where it begins. That's when we begin to fight back and say to temptation, enough of this. I will not live there any longer. I will not. Your kingdom come. Now, during those 40 days, what do you think Jesus was doing? Do you think he was just crouching in the shade trying to get out of the sun? Do you think he slept all day? Let me suggest this. Over the last few Sundays, we have defined prayer in this sense, that prayer is when you actively, intentionally climb up into the lap of God, and you rest there, and you relax there, and you talk in deep and intimate terms, and you say, Father, oh, it has been a tough week. It has been so bad. There have been moments when I have ignored you and turned my back on you. Forgive me. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. Strengthen me. Enable me to begin again. That's when you begin to fight against it. You fight against it when you begin to make Him central in your thinking. 
when you begin to remember who He is and what He has done and what His enabling grace is capable of. We remember Him. This morning when we said, do this in remembrance of me, that wasn't by chance or accident. We went right back to Calvary, and we remember what He has accomplished for us and that we belong to Him. And when we put Him central in our thinking, then we stand up to temptation and sin. When we put Him central in our feelings, and by that I mean this, we enjoy Him, we rest in Him, we remember the sweetness of fellowship and intimacy and love with Him. That's how we put Him central in our feelings. And central in our planning means this, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Father, help me this week to be ready and armed when temptation comes my way. Help me to recognize it. Give me the spiritual discernment I need for understanding what it is when it first approaches me. And you may be here this morning saying, Richard, listen, you've described it well. You've explained it. I understand it. I see the enslaving, debilitating, tranquilizing effect of sin in my life. But if you only knew me, if you only knew the number of times I've tried to stand up against it and it hasn't worked, if you only knew the hopes and dreams I've had, the promises I've made that I will change, I will begin again, and then it comes to nothing. Richard, give me something I can take away this morning. Give me something I can hold on to. Help me, encourage me, enable me, please. That's what I need. I don't want to walk out of here with platitudes. Give me something of value. Well, here it comes. This is an old story, something of a legend. I can never see it working, but it has a nugget of truth right towards the end. And the story is this. Satan decided he was going to retire. He'd had enough accomplished all he wanted to accomplish, and so he had a yard sale. And he put out the tables early on a Saturday morning, and he laid out there all of his successful tools in tempting people. All of the things he'd used down through the centuries. There was one to stimulate folks to lie, one for jealousy, one for sensuality, one for arrogance and pride and theft and addiction, all there. And right at the center was an iron instrument, I suppose you would call it a wedge shape, and it was more expensive than everything else. And when he was asked, why, why is that much more expensive than anything else? He said, I can take it and I can just gently knock it into the crevice and cracks and weak points in a person's life, and then I'll hit it a second time, and then a third time, and then I can really go to work. And when I go to work, with discouragement, he said, it usually begins, I just quietly whisper in their ear and say, really? You 
you think, you think you're going to beat this sin after all these years? Yeah, right. You think that prayer will help? <laughs> sure. How many times have you prayed? <laughs> How many times have you promised? How many times have you tried? Yeah. You? <laughs> you know where this is going to end up. By the end of the week, you'll be mine all over again. Oh, you may try now. Yeah, you may be optimistic. You may feel great. But you're mine, and I'll get you. And he finished up by saying this. Most people don't even know when I'm using it. But please understand this. When you climb up into the lap of the Lord God Almighty, and when you are determined to actively, intentionally put Him central in your thinking, in your feelings, and in your plans. There is nothing and no one who can stand against His grace. And as you leave this morning, leave rejoicing, knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that you belong to Him, that He is yours, and you are His, and He will never give up, and never abandon you, and never leave you, and He will strengthen you and enable you when you are ready to say, I am no longer willing to live like this. I am done with it. I am done with it. Father, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. That's where it begins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Father, You know that each of us come from different backgrounds. Some of us are going through the most blessed days of our Christian life. Others of us are struggling. Father, You know us better than we know ourselves, and we ask today that You would strengthen us. You would encourage us. You would draw us close into that place of deep abiding intimacy with You. Father, thank You for Your love and Your grace. Bless us in this week, and allow us, please, to live for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Millions across the world this year will gather to celebrate the resurrection of Christ at Easter time. Here in Jerusalem, the sights and sounds of the ancient city take us back to that first Easter and allow us to feel and sense God at work through the transforming love of Christ and the power of the resurrection. Here at First Presbyterian, we are delighted to invite you, your family and friends to come and join us as we celebrate the resurrection with services at 8 o'clock, 9.30, 10.45 and 11. Please come and join us and I look forward to welcoming you.